session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. We won't be taking calls today because I have a guest who I'll introduce to you shortly. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let me introduce you to our guest for today. Dr. Sahba Shayani is lecturer in Persian language at UCLA's Program of Iranian Studies in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. Prior to joining UCLA in January of this year, Dr. Shayani taught at the University of Oxford from 2015 to 2022 as senior lecturer in Persian. Dr. Shayani has been involved with Persian language pedagogy at various levels since 2005. He holds a PhD from UCLA in classical Persian literature with a special focus on the role of women in epic Persian romances. His research focuses on the crossroads of female representation, agency, and identity in classical Persian literature. Dr. Sahwa Shayani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you. It's so wonderful to have you. And and I, before we came on the air, um, Dr. Shayani, I'll, I'll sometimes call you Sahwa if please, you don't mind. Please, Because I've known Sahwa for, we were trying to figure it out, but close to 20 years. Yeah. So you've been a, a longtime friend. And uh, as I mentioned in the bio, you were in England and the UK for seven, eight years, but finally back here. So, it's so we're so happy to have you back in Thank the studio. You. But before that, even just back here, in California and Los Angeles area. Thank you, thank you so much, Farid John. It's wonderful to be here. Well, well so happy to have you here. And I really um, would have always wanted to have you on uh, the show because you have so much knowledge to share. Thank you. But as I, I shared with you some of our earlier conversations with uh, what's happening in Iran right now with a movement that is very much led by women and the focus is women, even when we say Zan Zendegi Azadiwi, that first word Zan for women, and your research and what you, your dissertation and the research you've done focuses on women in classical Persian literature and their roles and uh, some fascinating insights on what we conceive, the lessons we learn or what the lessons we think we learn or society learns from those characters, which I think we can get into in more detail. Yes. Maybe we can just start in a more general sense. Um, you know, you're a professor at Oxford for seven, eight years and now a professor here at at UCLA, what even got you into this, to Persian language and Persian literature? Because I know you're born here, but went yes. to Iran for a little bit. Maybe you can tell the, the, everyone about a little bit about more your sure. life and how you got to where you are now. Sure, sure. So yes, I was born uh, here in California, and then when I was four, uh, went to Iran and lived there until I was ten, and then came back again to Northern California. Um, and you know, I think. Those six years in Iran really helped me connect back to my roots um, and sort of get an understanding of um, my past, my heritage. And then coming to Northern California, especially where the Iranian community, particularly at that time, wasn't as strong as it is here in Southern California, mm. um, you really felt that sort of... Um, out of placeness in a mm -hmm, way, like, mm -hmm. you know, you don't necessarily belong. And so... That coupled with, I think, the fact that so many family, friends, and so on uh, would compliment me always for like my Persian growing mm -hmm. up, 
brought me into this space where I felt like I needed to preserve subconsciously preserve my heritage in a way mm-hmm. um, and I think that found itself that need found itself later on in what I ended up studying because initially like I was telling you I did English literature my my interest in literature has always been there mm-hmm. but then once I found uh, once I so I did two years at community college um, and while I was at community college, I took one Persian class. And the Persian class uh, had t- the two levels of elementary and intermediate mixed into one. And because they were put into one class, the teacher couldn't really handle these two levels together. Mm-hmm. And I'm always grateful for her to her for this because she then said, okay, your Persian is good enough. Why don't you help me? We'll split the class and you do one um, hour with one group and I'll do the other and then we switch. And that sort of, that was in 2005, and it sort of started me on this trajectory of uh, gaining more experience with Persian teaching. And then when I came to UCLA, I minored in Persian, and then ended up applying for the Iranian Studies program for my PhD. And so I think all of these sort of went back to that Mm. initial desire of trying to preserve my cultural identity, you know? Yeah. Well, I think your initial desire was to be a diver, from what you told me. Yes. A deep sea diver, but then you learned about sharks, and then that changed your mind. That went we, out the window. We won't analyze yeah. that, that this fear of sharks. We'll leave that for another interview. I'd but, love that, actually. Yeah, but I do actually find it, you know, I always love hearing about people's, uh, not origin, well, it's kind of like an origin story, but mm. how they got to where they are, because, yeah. you know, when we... Um, I, especially when you're a kid, but even in general, we just think of like, well, people were always meant to be this or was always right. destined no. for to be that. And it's like, no, you know, you weren't born with like patches on your jackets, you know, no. the, your elbows, jackets or whatever. And like <laughs> you kind of developed this path, you know, yeah. through some of your interests. You can you can trace it back now. But as it was happening, it seems like you were not intending not at all to become a professor. No, I to, mean, to, yeah. when I when I finished English as my as undergrad at UCLA, my goal was law school after mm. that. Can you imagine yeah. being in law school? Um, <laughs> and I I studied for the LSAT one summer and it was awful and yeah. I had to take it again and I decided, no, like I'm not going to do this. And then Iranian studies was there and it was always like this interest, but it, it felt too much of like a passion, you know, mm. project sort of, not something that I should get into. But through the encouragement of my professors and also consulting with my parents who initially were very much kind of not for it, you know, like, Uh what are you, what are you going to do with that? But eventually they came around to it and I decided to go. And then it was as if this sort of like crossroads of like my interests and like the universe giving me go signals, you know, Mm -hmm. happened and Mm -hmm. doors opened and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, actually, um, I didn't ask you about this before we talked about the research you've done, but I'm wondering how even that, how you found that topic. That topic. uh, Because I know, as I mentioned, you've done a lot of work looking at uh, female figures in right. classic Iranian literature. So I'm yeah curious how that even came about, that interest, their focus. That's a great question. Um, it's a variety of elements. I think first and foremost, it came from this place where I felt that in the West particularly, there was always, or even still today, there is this notion that the Eastern woman needs saving. Mm-hmm. And having been raised by an Iranian mother, I know that the last thing Iranian women need is the saving, being saved by men, you know, Mm -hmm. period. Um, 
And so I knew how strong Iranian women were. And so that was something that always created this passion in me to show that to people. It's like, no, like the, the, you don't know what strong, what strength there is, mm-hmm. you know, in Iranian women, mm-hmm. which we now, you know, now the world is seeing it, you yeah. know. Um, but this is something that I feel like for, for us who are raised by Iranian women, we know this, you know, from mm-hmm. the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that um, coupled with... Um, I, I always had growing up a, a strong interest in the character of Tahir Quratul Ain, and so it's tied in with that too. This, mm. this again, strong Iranian woman, you know, who stands up for what she believes in uh, and ultimately gives her life for it. So these two things sort of came into being with wanting to then write about um, the women of Iran, and in some sense, and, and my interest is always in literature, of course. And in some senses, it felt like, okay, let's go back to the starting point, mm-hmm. you know? And unfortunately, um, as is the case with world literature, the role of women as authors of these literatures is, in especially in the classical periods, is not, not that known, you know? And there's yeah. a uh, paucity of sources, and uh, we don't really have much. We don't know about women authors. And the same is true for Persian literature, you know? Uh, we know about Rabe'e and Mahsati Ganjavi, who are our two earliest female uh, authors, poets, but not enough, really. Mm. And so the next best thing for me to work on was female characters in these texts. And also because I also really do believe this, this is a... a um, perhaps a controversial claim to make, but I really believe it. I think that our literature affects our culture and sure. our understanding of the world, our perspective, our perspectives, and our present. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's ancient literature. So I think analyzing female characters in epic romances actually does tell us ultimately something about us today even sure uh, yeah i don't know you're you're the expert in literature and looking at literature analysis so i don't know mm. how accepted or not accepted it is but to me in general art and society and culture they co-create each other they influence each other art influences society society influences art and Absolutely. it's a dynamic back and forth so i think there's definitely a lot we can learn from a culture, a society based on its art, especially you know, you know, speaking on that, um, what's the art that is preserved, right? So, which stories mm. maintain that you know withstand the test of time? Yeah. That probably is telling us something that either it's accepted or approved, or Very true. you know, people find it valuable. So yeah. that itself has, I think, gives you some insights into something. So I think it's definitely worth looking at. Well, what were yeah, who were the female characters, and what did it show us about you know female women in society back then, Absolutely. or what was accepted and not accepted? And we might actually talk about that later in some yeah. prominent female characters in Iranian literature. Um, and who were the ones that we remembered and how do we remember them. So I think that that totally makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. no, you're right. I mean, I think the agency that these women wield in these stories oftentimes says a lot. I think it it reflects the women of Iran. And and also, I should say, when I speak of Iran, too, I speak of greater Iran in many Mm -hmm. ways because these literatures belong to greater Iran. It's not just modern-day Iran, but it's also Afghanistan. It's also the surrounding areas of modern-day Iran. So it definitely um, it, it reflects their agency even to this day and age, I think. Yeah. And we see it particularly, I think, today in Iran and Afghanistan itself and how women who are are standing up for their rights. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I mentioned uh, throughout the show, we'll, uh, we'll 
even possibly get some storytelling from you of, absolutely of sharing um, some of these classic Persian literature stories that many of you might be familiar with some may not but either way it'll be nice to retell them or bring up parts of them to then talk about aspects of what you've witnessed or your analysis on what we learn about women and their agency as you were saying um, before we go to commercial break we're at almost at the first commercial break one thing uh, we kind of half joked about this, but Persian versus Farsi and how people say that, because yes. this is something I've always, I've dealt with. And I actually didn't, I, your professor, um, he yeah, was Dr. one of the people Hathi, that I yes. remember mentioned it to me early, this is maybe 20 years ago, yes. that you don't call it Farsi when you're speaking English, yes. you should call it Persian. So yes. can you kind of once and for all set that record straight? <laughs> yes, you asked me if it annoys me and I, and I answered with a very clear yes. <laughs> yeah. It does. Um, so it's saying I speak Farsi in English is like saying I speak Espanol or right. I speak Deutsch, you know? Right. The name of the language in English is Persian. Right. And actually, when you refer to it in English as Farsi, you're robbing it of the thousand years of history that it has mm. in connection to the West and in connection not, not just to English, but, you know, to English's ancestors, to Greece, you know, yeah. to, to Greece. So Persian comes from what the ancient Greeks called the Iranians, you yeah. know, it, it refers to farce, to, per, mm -hmm. per, you know, Persis, to, um, but we have this long history of this. And so I think we should refer to it by the English name because it's been there for, for, yeah. for millennia. Yeah, yeah. So I've heard definitely, you know, Iranians ourselves call it Farsi when we're speaking yeah. English. I've also heard it. I think it's like a the the American that wants to sound very woke. The yes, show definitely. I know the I've word. Seen that. Yeah. yeah, so they'll call it Farsi to say yeah. I know that it's like something else. But yeah. as you're saying, the correct it would be to say Persian when you're speaking in English. Yeah. Of course, when you're speaking in per, it's kind of funny when you're speaking in Persian, you would say Farsi. Of course, but, yeah. yeah. But um, it's like yes, yeah. That was just something I wanted to clarify because I've heard that. Many times in myself, I sometimes pause when I hear people or I, I've seen job, you know, offers and it's like, oh, therapists and like they want people who are Farsi speaking and something. And I get yeah. it that they maybe think it's the better way to say it. But anyway, so we have a professor of Persian language with us, the studio, Dr. Sahba Shayani. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back again. I'm joined today by Professor Dr. Sahbashayani, I gave you two titles. It became German, yeah. <laughs> uh, who is a professor of, of Persian language at right? But I know you also I'm, I'm a lecturer in lecture Persian, Persian language at UCLA. Yes. Yeah. And so um, we were talking before the break actually about using Farsi versus Persian, and then when you're speaking English, we should be saying Persian. But also, there's this um, people identifying themselves as mm. Iranian or Persian. I don't know if you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean. Um, I th my my take on it really is that we should re be referring to ourselves as Iranian because um, first of all that land has been referred to as Iran since the Achaemenid era Iran you know so this is an ancient name and we're a people of a, of an ancient land so there's pride I think to be had in that um, but also the fact that you know Persian is one ethnicity within the larger Iranian tapestry mm -hmm. um, and so when we refer to ourselves as Persian I think a lot of people like to do this because it's sounds softer, more exotic, mm -hmm. you know, less um, political and all of these things. But I think actually when you do that, you sort of give give away what's rightfully yours, which is your yep. Iranian identity. Um, but yeah, Persian is one ethnic group within the larger, you know, context of Iranian. In Iran, we have Azaris, we have Kurds, we have uh, Baluchs, right? We have Lors, mm -hmm. a lot of different ethnicities. And Fars is one of these, Persian is one of them. So really, 
for example, I always use myself as an example. I'm Iranian. I'm probably not Persian at all, mm. um, but I'm Iranian, and Iranian, the land of Iran and Iran's history and Persian culture and Persian language and Persian literature is all very much a part of who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, you know it's interesting because like I could hear, but then when you're saying we're talking about certain things like Persian rugs or yeah. that, that things that can make we sense. We use it as an adjective. Yeah. yeah. Persian food, Persian culture. Yeah. Um, of course, the language, like we were saying, is called Persian. Right. Persian literature. But the people are an Iranian people that consists of a larger. Yeah. And that's the beauty of Iran. I always tell my students this. I always say that the beauty of Iran is this diversity of ethnicities mm-hmm. and religions that we have within, you know, within yeah. our country. Right. Yeah. Um, and you were saying about the distancing from Iran, I think for a lot of the Iranians that came around the time of the revolution yeah. and the hostage crisis, like saying that you had, you know, anything associated with Iran, saying Persian would maybe confuse people a little bit more, yeah. make you, a little bit of distance. So yeah. I think people held on to that, but exactly. that's, that's his own conversation. Yeah. Uh, coming back to the, so I guess you'd call it Persian literature, then yes. not Iranian literature. Yes, Persian, Persian literature. literature. Yeah. Uh, you've, as I mentioned, studied, I'm sure lots of Persian literature, but focused on several prominent female characters yes. in some of the prominent uh, Iranian texts. So right. maybe we can do an overview of some of the ones you've studied in more detail, and then we can get more in depth on sure. one of them. Yeah. yeah, some of the prominent Persian texts that I focused on are the uh, Ferdosi's Shahnameh mm-hmm. um, and Gorgani's Visoramin and Nezami's Khosro Shirin. Uh, some of these Names will be very familiar, I think, to most of the listeners, too, as they're sort of the lores of our people and our culture. Um, in the Shahnameh, I looked at women in the first half of the Shahnameh, which tends to be the more sort of mythical part of mm-hmm. the text. The Shahnameh, as it goes on, becomes more pseudo-historical, sort of, towards the end. But in the beginning, it's much more mythical or a mix of history and myth. Um, and the women that I've looked at in the Shahnameh are Rudabe, Tahmine, um, Manija, and Sudabe. Um, two of which, Rudaba and Tahmine, are linked to Rostam, who's you know the uh, hero par excellence of uh, Persian literature. Really, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's uh, people like to compare him to our Hercules in many ways. Yeah. I would argue that he's much better and more interesting than Hercules. <laughs> but in what, what in what ways would you say he's better? I think and more he's just more of an. I mean, uh, to be fair, I haven't studied Hercules in depth, right. but um, from what I know, it seems like Rostam is, has there's more depth to Rostam's character uh-huh. than there is to Hercules. I am also pretty sure that Rostam is present throughout the epic more than Hercules is present in Greek, ancient Greek epic, okay. I would think, think, but perhaps I'm wrong. Um, but so, yeah, it's interesting. These actually, these four women are really interesting to look at because the the theory, the standing theory at this point is that these stories of the of this portion of the women of the Shahnameh come more from um, sort of tribal uh, origins mm. and so on and so forth. And people argue that that's why they have, the women have more agency. But it's really interesting actually to look at, when you look at these four different characters in these stories, it's always these women who approach the men that they, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they take on as their partners. Um, and they all exercise the agency that they have to get what they want, you know, to ultimately achieve what they want. Usually it's in regards to love and it's in regards to some sort of relationship with a male hero or, or a king or something. Um, but all of them really are the ones who are in power ultimately. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones who approach the, the, the male counterpart and choose him in a way as to be their partners. 
The only one who's a negative out of these characters is they're all pretty positive characters, um, but it's Sudabe who's the more vil- she's arguably the greatest uh, female villain of the Shahnameh. But even that, I would argue, is so because she ultimately bends the will of fortune to her will and doesn't give in to what the patriarchy wants, mm. um, which is for her not to be with Siavosh, who's her stepson, actually. Um, and that's why she's chastised and punished for it. It's uh, it's not because she does anything else other than really trying to get what she wants, which is against what the patriarchy, a.k.a. in this case, the monarchy, really wants and benefits mm. from. Yeah. And those might be interchangeable <laughs> at times, patriarchy, monarchy. They are, I think, yeah. in the Shahnameh, they're very much so, yeah, interchangeable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you're saying that those 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 four women in the Shahnameh you focused on, and then yeah. the other two. And so th- them, I see sort of as like paragons initially, that uh-huh. then um, other female characters take form from. So then I look at the character of Vis. So the Shahnameh was written in 1010 CE, so like the 11th century. Mm-hmm. Visoramin is written like 50 years after that. Visoramin is a love story between Vis and Ramin. Um, so it's different than the Shahnameh in the sense that it is also an epic, but it's more of just a romance. Mm. Um, and so, yes, I focus on the character of Vis in that epic and how she wields her agency to get what she wants. Because in the story, uh, it's a long story and we can go into depth sure. about it. But um, she's married off basically before birth even to the king of Iran. Um, and ultimately, she has to use all that she has at her disposal to get out of this unhappy marriage that she has and to be with the man that she truly loves who is actually the king's younger brother Ramin Mm -hmm. and she ultimately achieves this um, and the two of them live happily ever after and the king dies and they become king and queen and Gorgani tells us that once she dies at the age of 80 which obviously for this time is a very old age Uh and once she does she goes to heaven and they're reunited in heaven and so on and so forth so it's interesting that in the text the character of Vis is actually um praised for what she does or Mm -hmm. rewarded let's say for what she does ultimately um, going against the patriarchy and getting what she wants to be with the man that she actually loves but eventually in Persian literature and the literary milieu she becomes known as a a villain again Mm -hmm. sort of whereas like a negative character as as uh, as a woman who's a a wanton basically Mm -hmm. you know um, and then you, in, in juxtaposition to her, you have the character of Shirin, who also appears in the Shahnameh initially, later on in the Shahnameh, but then has her own rendition rewritten by Nezami. Um, this is in the 12th uh, century. Um, she, so she has her own story rewritten in which she uh, is remanifested as the Queen of Armenia, who becomes the beloved of the King of Iran, Khosrow. And Shirin ultimately becomes the more palatable of the between Vis and Shirin of the two mm-hmm. characters because she makes the focus of her life sort of becomes this preservation of her chastity and her reputation. Um, she even... Um, foregoes her crown and her throne in Armenia to come to be with Khosrow. Um, meanwhile, Khosrow is um, sleeping around with different women and, you know, being unfaithful to her and so on and so forth. So uh, definitely not the positive character in that story, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Um, but she foregoes everything to be with him. And ultimately, they, they marry and they, um, they come together. But Shirin, therefore, becomes the more palatable of the female characters for the patriarchy because she right. is the woman who goes with the grain as opposed to Vis who goes against yeah, the grain. Right. Right? Yeah, and I also know we might get to talk about how you're more Team Farhad when it comes to that 
Definitely, story. yes. We might get into the details of that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's interesting to say palatable or what's more acceptable or desirable right. for the patriarchy or for the male-dominated focus yeah. of Vis is remembered in a negative way, even yes. though in the text she's, it seems like she's uh, praised in or she's text? living a good life and is rewarded even with heaven, not yeah. just that, uh, and, and reunited with her love. Yeah. And so we, maybe we can get into that. Because I think that when you shared with me those insights, I thought it was fascinating yeah. because there could be a big difference between what's in a story or what's in the literature and what a society or culture takes from yes, it and how it's remembered. Definitely. I mean, it's interesting because Gorgani, the poet of Visoramin himself, literally ke- says he keeps defending Vis throughout the text, which I also find interesting, you know, because mm-hmm. here's the, the male author defending the key female character, yeah. you know, as she does things which the predominant male milieu might not find so palatable. Um, but... Um, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating how yeah. she is able uh, to do that. Yeah, and then how she's, yeah, like, as we're saying, like how they remember, because um, I think in most, you know, literature, even in whatever culture it is, most people haven't read it or they've read it in a cursory way to be, right. you know, if we want to be frank, but they rem- they know what they're supposed to know from it, right? So you're supposed yeah. to, like, I mean, and I wasn't even that familiar with, but Vis is a certain, like, that's a, you wouldn't want to be that kind of woman, or it's maybe not the best type of yeah. woman to be where shooting is more I mean, of the ideal in a way. What's inter- one thing that's interesting for me, and of course this is controversial in a way, but um, is that even in modern day, our concepts or our, our, our understanding of Persian literature and literary female characters, we don't really know much about Vis, right? If you ask people generally, yeah. they've never heard of Vis, whereas we've heard of Shirin, mm-hmm. right? We name our daughters after Shirin. Vis is much less common. Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting thing, which I really think does reflect sort of Vis's history. But even in the texts itself, themselves, Vis reappears as a sort of negative character. So in Khosrow Shirin, um, Mahin Banu, who's Shirin's aunt, who's the queen of Armenia who eventually bestows her crown upon Shirin, she tells Shirin, she says once, um, that be careful that Khosrow doesn't have his way with you before putting a ring on it, basically, before Mm -hmm. marrying you. Otherwise, and she literally says, you will become ill-reputed throughout the world like Vis. You know, Mm. so it's interesting that a text that's written 200-something years right after Visoramin sees Vis and points to her as the negative female character. Mm-hmm. And then later on in, this, in the works of different authors in the 14th century and so on, you have Vis and Ramin being referred to as a text that women should not read. And then if they do read it, it would lead them astray. You know, mm-hmm. Something that's interesting also about Vis, as opposed to Shirin, is that Vis is sort of affiliated with the concept of the pen. So Vis is most known for these 10 letters that she writes to Ramin to win him back eventually. Mm. So it's Vis and her ability to write. Wow. Right? And it's always women's abilities to write is always a problematic issue. Oh. Right? Mm. Whereas with Shirin, Shirin also writes, but it actually Shirin is known for her speech. Actually, Nazami says at one point in the text that the, I've heard the reason she was called Shirin, which means mm-hmm. sweetness, was because of her Shirin Sohani, because of the sweetness of her utterance, of her speech. So Shirin is much more related to speech. Mm. And this is an interesting concept that I sort of dive into too in my work, in that Shirin being affiliated with speech, which is a much more malleable sort of science or art, is, is again, more palatable for the patriarchy and so on and so forth, versus Vis being affiliated with this element with this art of writing mm. and being able to disseminate your ideas sort of and your thoughts and also put them in, put 
them into paper and you make them solidified is more problematic. Right. Yeah. And there's ways where just based from what I'm hearing you describe, Vs would be more uh, threatening or more yes, like you know, she has more power and that's absolutely. M- more uh, brings more fear for the patriarchy or the male dominant society i mean she is she is such a powerful character in the story there is there's one scene where when the king finds finds out initially about her um affair with ramin behind his back he begins to you know he starts yelling at her and threatening her and so on and she turns and she has a beautiful soliloquy i wish i had it here to read with me but she says do whatever you want you know pull out my eyes take me through the bazaar and you know parade me in in disgrace do whatever you want to do because no matter what you do i'll always love ramin and even mm. if you kill me when they come to my grave they'll see written on my grave here died vis for the sake of ramin you know wow. and there's another scene i love this scene in which she He's trapped in the palace by the king because he goes away on, on a hunt and he locks her into the palace so that she won't escape to be with Ramin. And he takes Ramin with her. And then in the middle of it, with Ram, him. With him, sorry. Uh-huh. Yeah, he takes Ramin with himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in the middle of the trip, Ramin falls ill. So mm-hmm. he allows him to return. And Ramin returns to the palace and ca- starts calling for Vis but can't find her. And she hears him. And he falls asleep in the garden looking for her. And she is stuck in this palace without any means of getting out. And she literally uses the, uh, Gorgani describes it beautifully. She uses the curtains mm-hmm. to start climbing up this, you know, hu- the huge walls of the palace and onto the window and then uses her chador to jump out from the window onto like the roof and all of these like acrobatic almost, mm-hmm. you know, things. And in the process, actually, it's also interesting. She's losing like articles of clothing and jewelry wow. is flying off her shoes. And she ends up lying naked. She ends up f- falling naked into the garden finally, mm. and goes forth and finds Ramin. And it's this beautiful scene where you you have this female character who's left with literally nothing, right. and she uses whatever it is that she has, and then appears. And this this nakedness is also very symbolic, mm-hmm, right? It's mm-hmm. like she appears in her ultimate truth mm. in the garden to her find her beloved. You know, wow. I mean, how much strength is that? Yeah. That that is the essence of strength. Yeah, I mean, that's like you're talking about like a type of uh, moral strength, and the authenticity has a strength, but also in that story, she displays a physical, physical strength, strength too. Like, yeah, so, and, and mental strength. strength. Like yeah. she uses her mind to do whatever she can to get out of that situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she becomes. It's funny because in in classical Persian poetry, the lover is uh, who's you know the, the the love crazed lover who always pines for the beloved is generally speaking always male, you know. Mm. But in this in this story and in you know other writings too, I don't want to make it sound like this is it the only one. But in this tale, Vis turns into that love crazed beloved. You know, mm. she's using everything that she has to get uh, to to get out and to find her beloved who's Ramin. And actually if you think of the roles of, you know, passive and active in this story, Ramin is definitely the passive character because he's just sleeping in the garden <laughs> waiting for her. Right. And she yeah. is using everything she has to find him and ultimately yes. reunite with him. Right, it's like sleeping beauty but reverse but the reversed. male and female reverse. Yeah. That is yeah. really interesting. Yeah. You know, we're we're at another commercial break and I wanted you to give like a a general overview, but you did get into some of them, but yeah, I think we can get sorry. more. No, it was great. I actually want to get more in depth some of those characters and some of these conclusions or things that you've recognized, and especially comparing them, especially there. It's so fascinating for me that you're saying V's showing strength in so many different yeah. ways, but she's considered the 
like the cautionary tale. Yeah. Don't be like Don't her. be like her. Don't read her um, story. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's quite fascinating. So we'll, we'll jump more into those stories. Again, my guest, uh, Professor Dr. Shayani, is with us today. Welcome back. Again, my guest today is Dr. Sahwa Shayani. Uh, before the break, you were touching on three different major texts and some of the female characters in them. Yes. Uh, but we can go back to the Shahnameh. Yeah. You said there's four characters that you studied or discussed yes. more in depth. And any of the, those that you'd like to get into? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's speaking, it's funny. You said Vis was sort of like this... Um, up, uh, backwards Sleeping Beauty yeah. in a way, right? With mm-hmm. Rami being the Sleeping Beauty. Um, it's interesting because the first story of Zal and Rudabe is very much like Rapunzel, actually. Mm. Um, so, th- and the story goes that Zal, who's the prince of Zabulistan, which is in modern day Sistan and Baluchistan, the southeast of Iran, um, goes to Kabulistan, which is modern day Kabul, mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Um, and there he uh, hears of this beautiful, the beautiful princess of that vassal kingdom of Kabulistan, whose name is Rudabe. And Rudabe hears of Zal through her father. So it's very interesting, actually, because initially Zal and Rudabe's father, Mehrab, meet each other. And they like each other so much that then Zal hears about the daughter. And because he's liked Mehrab so much, he says, oh, I want to meet the daughter, too. Mm. But what's interesting is that Rudabe hears about Zal through her father, and she falls in love with him and says, s- sends her womenfolk to go and to find out where Zal is and to bring him to her. Um, and so her handmaidens go and they find him and they set up a meeting and he comes to her that night Mm. Um, and when he arrives to her the palace she comes out of the balcony and says you know oh great paladin you've uh, I I love it it's just all this Persian tarof you know (laughs) he's like you've uh, you know you've uh, hurt your feet by walking here (laughs) all this way thank you and she says um uh, climb up my hair, you know, and she throws her hair down and says, climb up my hair to come up. And he, of course, kisses her hair because he's a gentleman. Mm-hmm. None of this climbing anyone's hair stuff. <laughs> um, and she, he says, no, no, your hair is like worthy of, you know, worship, blah, blah, blah. And then he throws a lasso up the oh, um, palace and goes mm-hmm. up to her room and mm-hmm. they spend the night together. And in the morning, they make this pact to marry one another. Um but lo and behold, once their families find out about this, especially Rudabe's family, they're very concerned about this because Rudabe actually comes from the line of Zahak, who's the serpent king, uh, the sort of the greatest villain of the Shahnameh. Mm. And so because of this, Zal is worried that the king of kings, Manucher, does not want such a union to take place. Um, but ultimately, really through a Rudabe's um, determination, through her pushing forward with it, and be through the role of her mother, Sindukht, who goes to the King of Kings and sort of barters this deal and says, look, we might be of the seat of Zahak, but we want nothing but what's in your interest. And these two uh, youths have fallen in love with one another and made this pact. Um, and so the king ultimately accepts, and the two marry, and from this union comes Rostam, actually, oh, who's then the greatest right. hero of the Shahnameh, who keeps over and over saving the monarchy, actually. If it's if it wasn't for Rostam and the Shahnameh, the monarchy would have fallen at different points. Um, but it's Rostam who saves the kings. Um, so it's interesting that from yeah. this union, mm-hmm. and from this union of sort of peripheral characters, you know, but mm-hmm. also like 
of of the light and the dark perhaps even in some ways right because you have Zal who actually is funny because he's called Zal because he's albino he's completely uh-huh. has white hair um, as a child even and through, so through him who even physically you could say represents this light and through Rudabe who because of her relation to Zahak and this sort of like magical element is perhaps darkness even though she's an amazing character um, comes the greatest hero of all mm. times you know and it's actually yeah. because he has both of these elements with him within him that he's able to be the the strong paladin that he is interesting even for me if i can add there like sure. that, that light in the dark sometimes when we yeah. talk about like the psyche jung mm. talks a lot about the shadow and mm. sometimes we think of it as like this bad part but yeah yeah it's complicated but sometimes it's like your strength is also there exactly. so when you have that light and dark and i'm not remembering his quote but it's like the a tree that can reach to heaven has yeah. roots that can go to hell so yeah. it's kind of oh, like that's interesting. you have to have like the light and the dark yeah. to be the strongest have all those human capacities yeah. within one individual and that yeah. dark can even be the skills of that dark can be honed in for the good right. actually yeah. yeah exactly exactly that's beautiful thank you oh, sure no that's that was interesting though but so yeah rostam came from this love rostam that was comes from quite unique this. in some ways yeah yeah exactly yeah and then it's interesting because because Rostam's own story too. So the the woman in Rostam's life is Tahmine, the princess of Turan, who again is the princess of, like I said, Turan, which is this empire to the north of Iran. It's Iran's cousin empire. They're of the same origins, but constantly at battle with one another. Um, and so he falls in love with uh, the princess of Samangan, which is a vassal in the Turanian lands, mm. um, Tahmine. And it's actually their story is fascinating because Rostam goes to Turan in search of hunt and while he's asleep um, his horse Rakhsh which is renowned throughout the Shahnameh mm-hmm. is stolen we don't know how we don't know by whom we just know these men come and take his horse and so when he wakes up he's very angry and Rostam almost I always imagine him sort of as like the primitive man kind of like he just wakes up he's like me angry you know (laughs) (laughs) starts hitting his chest Um, but so he follows Raksha's um, footsteps uh-huh. to Samangan and there he uh, approaches the king of that vassal kingdom and says my horse is the, the footsteps lead to here it's clear that my horse is here you either give me back my horse or I will cut off all the heads of all your men and the king says no no don't do that stay with us for the night be our guest um, cue uh, Disney's Beauty and <laughs> be our guest <laughs> um, be our guest and we will find your horse in the morning Sorostam agrees and he spends the night in merrymaking and drinking and eating and feasting and at midnight drunk he goes to his chambers and falls asleep in the middle of the night lo and behold a servant walks into his room holding a candle and behind the servant comes in the beautiful Tahmine mm. and she approaches him wakes him up and he's like who are you and what are you doing in my bedroom <laughs> at this time of night and she says i am the great Tahmine the princess of Samangan and no one has seen me uh, before and no one shall see me after this um, and i've heard the stories of your great victories and your defeats of demons and so on I've heard the tales of your strong neck and your bulging biceps and your chest and she literally <laughs> uses this language um, and at every at hearing every one of these I've bitten my lips in desire for you and I've come to you tonight so that I can spend the night with you that perhaps from this union I too shall bear a son who will resemble his father in greatness mm. and the beauty of it is she barters she says if you make this wish of mine come true you will have your horse 
in the morning. So it's very interesting because I think that actually they stole the horse probably mm-hmm. like it wasn't you know that Rakhsh, it wasn't that he was just stolen by a random man Tahmina probably with the king maybe they sort of you know had this as a as a ruse of some sorts mm. um, and Rostam is of course what's there to lose he's elated and he agrees and they spend the night together and in the morning as he arises to leave he has an armlet that he takes off um, and he says keep this if you have a son tell him to wear it on his arm mm. so that I know he is mine and if it's a daughter tell her to wear it in her hair so I know she is mine and Rakhsh is returned to him lo and behold and he returns back to Iran and remembers this fondly and you know years later out of this um, so, well m- nine months later Sohrab is born out of this union and years later Sohrab returns to Iran to find his father and uh, we were talking about this mm-hmm. earlier but Really, the story of Rostam and Sohrab is undoubtedly um, the greatest tragedy of the Shahnameh. Um, and it's fascinating. It's an interesting tale. Every time I talk about it, I get really emotional because it's, especially one part of it is absolutely beautiful. But um, Sohrab comes back to Iran from Turan after growing up hearing all these wonderful stories from Tahmina about his father, um, Rostam. And he comes in search of Rostam. And eventually he finds him, um, or he eventually he finds him, but he doesn't know who he is. He just finds this paladin mm-hmm. that he has to fight because he's come from Turan, and the king sees him as a, the king of Iran sees him as a threat, and sends, of course, Rostam, the greatest of all, to go and fight this new young warrior that's come from the northern lands. And Rostam goes in and fights him, and Rostam also doesn't know who he is. And they have three rounds of battles. In the first, Rostam is really surprised and shocked at Sohrab's strength. In the second, Sohrab defeats Rostam, actually, and pins him to the ground. And in this, Rostam uses a ruse, and he says, O great paladin, um, it is the custom of my people here in Iran that when we are defeated once, the enemy gracefully allows the the opponent to arise once more and fight another round. And Sohra, being young and green and not knowing any better, says, okay, fine, then, you know, I want to be a great hero myself. So he agrees to it. And that night they retreat to their camps and Rostam is shaken. He's terrified because this is the first time that this has happened. And so he prays to the gods and he says, give me this strength. And it's fascinating because it's his prayer is heard and he's imbue, imbued sort of with extra strength. And then the next and, and then Sohrab also has this lingering doubt that mm. what if this is Rostam? So in the next in the third meeting, and if I'm not mistaken, even in the second one, but in the third meeting, he asks him, he says, oh, great paladin, are you you you? You make me think of the great Rostam. I would think that you are perhaps him. Are you him? And Rostam, again, out of fear that if somehow he divulges this, he will be defeated or something, lies once again Mm. and says, no, no, I am not. and so they fight again, and at this in this battle, with the heavenly strength that Rostam's received, he pins Sohrab to the ground. And he pulls out his dagger, and Sohrab says, Oh great paladin, you said that we have you have this custom. And so I'm getting goosebumps as I'm telling this. But you have this great custom. So as is customary, you'll let me flee this this time and we fight again. And Rostam laughs and says, No, that was a ruse. And he stabs him with a dagger. And as Sohrab lies there dying. He turns to Rostam and says, 
um, don't worry, you may have killed me, but you're the loser in this battle because, and this is the line he says, no matter whether you turn into a bird and fly to the heights of the sky or a fish and dive to the depths of the sea, my father, the great Rostam, will find you wherever you are and he'll take vengeance on my death for, mm. from you. And then Rostam is sort of just, you know, uh, shocked and says, what do you mean? Who are you? And he says, I'm Sohrab, the son of Rostam. He says, what proof do you have? And that's when he rips mm. open his sleeve and shows him the armlet that he had given to Ahmineh. And, and then um, Sohrab dies. And Rostam flees to the king, tries to get an antidote to the poison mm. actually from the king. And the king has this antidote, but doesn't give it to him because he's like, no, I might need it myself. Wow. And lets Sohrab die. Uh. And this is a king that Rostam has saved many times, mm. by the way. This is Sudab's husband, actually, uh -huh. this king. Um, so, as my um, as my late professor, um, Dr. Hossein Ziai, would always say, the tragedy in Persian literature, as opposed to Greek in Greek literature, the tra the the main tragedy is um, patricide, right? It's the the son killing the father. Um, in Persian literature, it's infanticide. Mm. It's of the father killing the son, and really, that is then the greatest you know tragedy of. The Shahnameh. That's again repeated in the story of Siavash with Sudabe, actually, in a way. Because mm. Siavash turns into almost Rostam's second son. Rostam raises him. And I think to some extent that is also why he is so violent towards Sudabe once Siavash is killed, because he blames her for the death, even though really she's, I mean, you could argue she's not to blame. Interesting. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, you shared that story with me once before, and a lot of this I've heard some of the stories, but I'm learning so much and it's so fascinating mm -hmm. to hear that. And I know you do get emotional every time you share that story, um, father, son, painful moment. And, and it's, like you said, interesting that it's, it goes in Greek tragedies. Often we see that yeah. the patricide, um, yeah. happening and we, you know, there's some more about that, um, the dynamics there, but especially going back to the female characters that you, you mentioned, we're at another commercial break, but I think it'd be really interesting um, some more about Shirin and, and Vis and some of those comparisons of those two very prominent figures in the Iranian Definitely. literature yeah. and some of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So let's go to another commercial break again. Dr. Safwa Shahani joining me today. We'll be right back. Welcome back again, Dr. Sahwa Shayani here. We're talking about some classic Persian literature, and maybe we can come back to another story that we touched on before about um, it's Shirin and Khosro. And, and Khosro Shirin. Khosro and Shirin. I was trying to make the, the woman more prominent, but yeah, <laughs> Khosro Shirin. And we could talk a bit about, yeah, go it's ahead. It's actually interesting because it's Khosro Shirin yeah. or Shirin of Farhad. So in the uh -huh. Farhad uh, rendition, she comes first. She first. Again, it's another proof that he's the better character. You yeah, know, the which two male characters. I was saying, you know, you, you told me this a few times that you really think she should have been with Farhad instead with Shirin. We can get into this. Maybe do you want to give us some of that context she about him, Shirin? Yes. Khosra and Shirin and then fa so Shirin and Farhad. It's yeah. actually very interesting, yeah. So Khosra and Shirin fall in love with one another. That's an interesting tale in that they fall in love with one another through depictions of each other. So there's mm. a, a, a intermediary, his name is Shapur, and he's an artist, and he's one of Khosra's friends. So he draws a picture of Shirin for Khosra, and when he sees it, he falls in love. Mm. And he draws a picture of Khosra for Shirin, and when she sees it, she falls in love too. So mm. this is how they fall in love with one another. And then then Shirin is in Armenia, or in Aran and Arman, as um, Nezami calls it, which is basically like Azerbaijan, Armenia, like that region. Mm -hmm. 
She's the princess of that region. And so she travels from Aran and Arman to Iran and alone. And he travels from Iran to Aran and Arman to try to meet each other. And en route, so as it was customary for Persian kings, he dresses as a beggar in, uh, to travel because he doesn't want to be attacked by oh, highwaymen and robbers. Uh -huh. So en route, Shirin is bathing in a pool. And this is actually, you may have even seen paintings of this. This is a, a, a scene that is very commonly depicted in Persian. And miniatures and paintings uh, and it's the scene where Shirin is bathing and Nezami describes it beautifully she's bathing in this lake um, en route to Iran and this man the, on horseback uh, comes by and he spots her and it's Khosro mm -hmm. and he spots her and he's in awe of her beauty and in all of the paintings there's this so they say it's like the finger of awe that they put the finger onto their mouth and they mm -hmm. stare they you know ogle sort of um, and he's in all the paintings he's standing like that looking at her with his finger in his mouth um, inspired by her beauty so this is the scene where they see each other and, and then she kind of turns around and she's ashamed that he can see her and then he Nezami says being a gentleman literally the only time he's a gentleman in the tale um, turns away and looks away so that she can get up and get dressed and, uh -huh. and then she bounces uh -huh. and um, as she leaves she thinks to herself what if that was him but then she's like well if it was then we'll meet again fate will mm -hmm. bring us together again Anyway, they end up in each other's countries with the other one being gone. Mm -hmm. And then Shirin basically just... Uh, actually, no. Then Shirin, I think, goes back to Armenia, and they meet up in Armenia. And there, that's when the queen, her aunt, I was telling you, says, you know, be careful. Don't let him get too friendly with you, because mm -hmm. otherwise you'll become renowned in the world like Vis uh -huh. and a, with ill repute. Make sure he marries you first. And so they spend some time together, and then there's a rebellion in Iran. And so then Khosro has to go back to Iran. And actually, Shirin is the one who encourages him to go back. She says, go back, get your throne back. Also kind of like, if you don't get your throne back, I'm not going to be with you. Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. then he goes back to get his throne, and then he realizes that he needs help in this process. So then he turns to Byzantine and to the uh, Byzantium emperor, and he says, I'll give you all the men you need, but in return, you have to marry my daughter, which is also common as like an alliance. So he agrees and daughters her and marries her, his daughter, Mariam, the uh, princess of Byzantine. And this, of course, upsets Shirin, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she comes to Iran eventually and stays in Iran in the hopes that maybe they can be together again. If I'm not mistaken, she probably comes to Iran maybe before they even she finds out that they're married. But then while Mariam and Khosro are married, Khosro keeps trying to, you know, get friendly with Shirin again. And Shirin constantly has to uh, ward him off, ward off his advances and so on and so forth. Um, and it really, it's interesting because as opposed to Vis, mm -hmm. in Nezami's rendition of Khosro Shirin at least, Shirin's obsession, and this actually begins, I argue, in the Shahnameh, because remember if I was saying the story of, Viso, of yeah. Khosro Shirin is also in the Shahnameh. Mm -hmm. It's a much shorter tale, but it's still there. But Shirin's um, obsession sort of becomes her reputation and this starts in the Shahnameh because she's accused of being a witch and a wanton and so on and so forth and in the Shahnameh she's able to prove herself as being a virtuous woman and then this anxiety sort of transfer it's, it's interesting how these texts speak to one another mm -hmm. too you know Shahnameh is written in 1010 uh, Khosra and Shirin is written in the 1200 so this is like a 250 year difference between them or 200 year difference and still they're in con conversation with one another. Mm -hmm. So these anxieties that Shirin has in the Shahnameh 
are taken over to Khosrow Shirin by Nazami. And she still has to sort of like prove this, her virtuousness now by sort of uh, protecting her chastity, you know, from, mm-hmm. from this man that she really loves. And she really wants to be with him, but she says, you have to marry me. And Khosrow keeps, at various points, keeps sort of like diverting this issue and going around it. But um, to go back to Farhad, in the process of all of this, Shirin falls ill because where she's being kept in Iran is a very unpleasant sort of area. And so all that will soothe her is milk. And apparently there's no sheep around where she lives. And so she asks for there to be a um, a jube, uh, like a... um, creek sort of mm-hmm. uh, carved out of the stone for the shepherds to spill milk from up on the mountains down to her and for this Farhad is brought in for this oh, for oh. this job and there's this beautiful scene in Khosrow Shirin where Nezami talks about when Farhad uh, doesn't even see but hears Shirin for the first time and he says that the 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 heavens um, plays this trick on him, you know, and from behind the customary veil where Shirin is sat because she's not to be seen by, you know, strangers and um, men that she's not related to. Um, from behind the customary veil, he hears her melodies. And, th- mm. and by hearing the melody, he loses his mind, sort of like he loses. And there's this beautiful line where Nezomi says, she, I've heard that Shirin was called Shirin because of the sweetness of her utterance, because of her words. And she was so eloquent that even um, even Plato would lose his mind were, mm. her, were he to hear her beautiful words. And so there's a scene where Shirin starts talking to him and he just loses everything. And then he sees her and then he's just like madly in love with her. And so then this this is the story is that he builds the creek for her for the milk to come and then Khosrow hears of this and he's threatened of mm-hmm, course mm-hmm. by Farhad's love for Shirin. So then he says what should we do and his viziers say the best way is to give him a project that he'll never finish. And he then he summons him to the court and tries to bribe him with jewels and stuff but Farhad isn't interested and he says okay then I command you to make this um sort of relief of me and Shirin, if I'm not mistaken, or of me in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, you know, he'll never do this. But then he does it. He goes he goes forward with it. And during this time, at one point, Shirin, and this is interesting because Shirin is very, you know, quote unquote, chaste and all of these things. But at this point, there's one scene where she says, one day she decides, let's go to the mountains and see Farhad and see if perhaps his love will incite something in our hearts, she literally says. So she goes up to the mountains and sees him. And then when he sees her, the love that it ignites in his heart makes him work faster even. And he ends Mm. up finishing the mountain even earlier. And then once this happens, Khosrow's like, uh-oh, this didn't work either. Then all I can do is sort of just lie to him and tell him that Shirin has died so that maybe he'll just let it go. And so he does. He tells him this lie, and out of his love, then Farhad goes crazy, and he throws himself off of the mountain in mm-hmm. his love for Shirin, thinking that he's lost her. And then once this happens, Shirin builds a mausoleum for him so he'll be remembered. So to go back to what we were saying, Farhad is definitely the better <laughs> lover, the better character yeah. here, whereas Khosrow is just doing his own thing the whole time. But then it's interesting because then Khosrow writes to Shirin and this letter that's very... Um, salty. Salty, yes, very salty. <laughs> and Nezami has this beautiful thing where he says that Shirin, once she reads it, she realizes it's their dates 
that have been stuffed with thorns, uh, you know? Uh-huh. And so it's interesting because it's sweet on the outside, but then you yeah. read it and you're like, oh, and it's all a jab at her saying, oh, it looks like your love really had a bad effect on Farhad and your lover boy lost it and he killed himself and this kind of stuff. And Shirin gets very upset. And Shirin is not, even though, you know, um, one can argue that in some ways she seems to be weaker than Vis because she placates to the patriarchy's desires, um, it, it gives forgoes her throne and her monarchy for Khosrow, and ultimately, spoiler alert, kills herself uh, once he dies because of her love for him. But still, she is she is very strong in her in her words mm-hmm. and in her approaches with Khosrow too. So once. Um, she receives this she's like I will not forget this and then a few months later Khosrow's wife Maryam dies and then in return Shirin writes a letter to Khosrow and and it's a very salty letter as we would say (laughs) and at the end of it is my favorite line she says first of all she says it's a shame that the king has lost his wife but there's nothing to worry about the king has many other beauties in his harems and he in, and he's easily appeased you know uh. so he basically t- tells him off um and then she says but don't worry dear king mariam was a treasure trove and the best place to keep a treasure trove, the safest place for a treasure trove to be held, is to be buried under the earth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so she's like boom. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. All of these women—they're really strong characters, you mm-hmm. know. And within their different milieus, they behave differently. You sure. know, um, that's why I don't even like saying that Shirin is weaker because she's not. It's just a different manifestation, right. you know. She's definitely more palatable for the, a male-dominated, you know, audience. So yes, um, but she wields her agency in her own way, and ultimately yeah. she wins because ultimately, after then marrying another woman, Shekar, Khosrow ultimately comes around and marries her. And wait, we, is the other woman's name Shekar? Yeah. So he likes Shekar and Shirin. So it's interesting oh because that's goodness. a whole game that Nezami plays on uh-huh, this. Uh-huh. And then Shirin returns. The, she says some really beautiful, has some beautiful lines about this. And she says, you know, Shekar can be sweet, but really, uh, Shekar only gets its sweetness from Shirin. You know, uh-huh. like she might be your you know sweetheart at this point but I'm that essence yeah. I'm the love that you have uh-huh. you know and so ultimately he divorces Shekhar and marries um, Shirin and makes her, makes her his queen and then his rule becomes much better once he marries mm. Shirin we're told yeah she becomes sort of like his guide in so a way so kind of behind every strong man is a strong woman kind yeah, of a thing yeah it is kind of like that very right. much so but it's yeah. intriguing that she herself had to, she had to give up her own throne yeah. to come dim the chastity waiting for him yeah. even though he's doing all the things he's doing yeah. Um, but yeah and as you said she has a lot of strength so it's not like she's just uh, quote no. unquote weak would not be fair No, no. but it is interesting to look at what are some of the qualities she had in comparison, let's say, to Vis, which yeah. might have been, as you said, more palatable, more desirable, yeah. more what would want to be promoted from the male yeah. perspective in women. That, exactly. You, know, you always wait for the man. You you can maybe do great things, but with the man, right, you get to go yeah. like help his kingdom become exactly. wonderful. Yeah. So I can get there's lots of these values that yeah. might want to be promoted. And again, it's like, is it the culture creating the art or the art creating the culture and Right. And vice versa, but it's interesting how that's um, looked at. She's looked at as such a admirable figure, but Vis, as you're saying, is looked at as like a don't be like yeah. a cautionary tale. It is also interesting in that um, a lot of these female characters in the classical texts, at least the texts that I have looked at, 
come from perif- the peripheries of the you know the mm. so the Iranian Empire, quote unquote. Um, uh, Rudabe comes from Kabulistan. Um, Tahmine comes from Turan, from Samangan. Manije comes from Turan. Sudabe comes from Yemen. Shirin comes from she's she's a Christian, um, so a, a minority, and later on from Armenia. And it's interesting that all of these women come from the periphery lands, and they're able to wield this agency. That's um, I don't want to say unheard of, but it's a strong, a strong agency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it does seem to me that the agency is allowed only until it um, helps the monarchy. Yeah, it helps the monarchy, mm-hmm. and by dint of that, the patriarchy. Right, move forward. Mm-hmm. Once they're done with that role, they're really expected to sort of go back into the shadows, in a sense. And if they don't, as we see in the character of Sudabe, they're punished for it uh, dearly. They pay for it dearly. And I think in juxtaposition to this stands Vis, actually, in many ways. Yeah, and this is again why, because she is an Iranian woman, um, and she goes against all of these, you know. Or I don't. She's she's from the center, let's say. You yeah. know, um, she's not from the peripheries, um, and she goes against all of these things, and she's able to then wield her agency and get, get what she wants, and therefore she's not really palatable for this narrative, you know. Yeah. And so she has to be vilified. Yeah, I think you know we're at another commercial break. Maybe even some more thoughts on that because I think that's so fascinating. This, as you said, not palatable. She's vilified, um, but as you said in the text, she's praised and rewarded and so it's interesting that these conclusions that what was taken from yeah. the story might not be exactly what was in it so mm-hmm. maybe we can talk more about that and some of these broader implications of um, male female dynamics in the, the you know our culture so let's go to another commercial break and i'm joined by dr sahwa shayani welcome back again my guest dr sahwa shayani uh sahwa before the break you talked a lot about the story of hosro and shirin i still I'm, i want to i'm going to petition to have a change to Shirin and Hosro or, or maybe Far, uh, Shirin and Farhan. Yeah. But uh, maybe we can go back to another one of the main people we've discussed or yes. characters, Vis, and how yes. Shirin, who's become this kind of the paragon of what a woman should be or you right. know, aspire to be, but Vis has been this, even in that story, don't become like her, right. ill repute like Vis. Uh, maybe you could talk even more about Vis because it's interesting, during the break you shared some points about it that I yeah. didn't know about, but Vis, who was more of this wielding her agency to a stronger degree, yeah. but how she's remembered. So yeah, please go ahead. I mean, it, it, I think it's interesting because Vis, people probably see her as more manipulative or something. And we were kind of talking about mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. too, um, which I completely disagree with because I feel like when you're put in a position where you have zero power, yeah then you use you try to wield power in any way that you can you know when you're unable to speak your truth and when you do speak it you're punished for it yeah if i may i mean i think this is such a you know i always when i talk about a topic like this stuff cuz to say a generalization you repeat it it's yeah. itself can have an effect but there is this tendency to say iranian women they can be manipulative right. in an emotional sense and i always take issue with that because right. as you're saying when you aren't given agency yeah. in a certain arena whatever that is yeah. you have to go to indirect means of to course. get your Way, right yeah. so uh, if if you can't say I want this and something can happen you have to find other ways yeah. to do it and so to those who have the power and the privilege it's going to look quote unquote manipulative yeah but it's actually a reflection of the fact that someone has not given agency and power Absolutely. so if if you do think if you're oh Iranian women are this way or that way let's say manipulative is the mindset that you have or the presumption then you have to also look at okay well am are women given the power they deserve yeah. to have the agency and power and obviously in m- most of our 
history, it hasn't been the case. So coming back to Visu, you're saying you think calling her manipulative is a misrepresentation or a negative interpretation. But yeah, maybe go back to more of her her story. But yeah, it's interesting. So so actually what ends up happening Initially, I didn't. We, we didn't really talk about the beginning of the visa and uh-huh. Ramin story. But what this, the way the story even begins is that there's this ball and uh, Shahru, that's who's Visa's mother, and Mubadamani Khan, who's the king of Iran. Um, they meet at this ball, and Shahru is the vassal princess of Mah, which is Ham- modern-day Hamadan. And the, so the capital at this point is Marv. It's like northeast of Iran and modern-day uh, Turkmenistan. Um, so they meet at this ball, and uh, Mobad falls in love with Shahru, and he and he petitions her to marry him. Hmm. And she's already married and has like kids, and so she says, "Oh no, I'm already married and I have kids." Um, but and she's really funny. She says, "You know, I'm old now." She's probably like twenty something, God knows. But <laughs> she's like, "I'm old now. You should have seen me in the day, my days of youth. You know, uh-huh. I was uh, the most beautiful ever." But then, like, he won't give up. So she's like, "You know what? Um, if I ever have a daughter, I'll give." Him to give her to you mm. and so they seal this deal and she says this thinking I'm never going to have another yeah. kid you know lo and behold she gets pregnant again and she has Vis and when he's when she's born it's creepy but Mobad like sends a congratulatory message or whatever oh. and such um, and then they never think of it she never thinks of it again and she sends Vis away to be educated um, with by a nanny and actually Vis and Ramin are around the same age Ramin is Mobad's younger brother mm. and they are raised by the same nanny so they know each other from childhood then when she becomes 16 or so she's sent back to Mah to be with her family and at this point Shahru has totally forgotten her promise and then as was customary at that point uh, so this story of Visoramin is actually of a Parthian origin. So it's the, the dynasty after the Achaemenids in mm. Iran. So it's a very ancient tale in its origin. Of course, what we're talking about is written in the 11th century. Anyway, so as was customary in that time, Vis is then betrothed to her brother, Viru. Yeah, And so Vis and Viru are married, but they are unable to consummate their marriage because Vis is on her cycle, actually, mm. at the, on the wedding night. And so... Um, Viru goes uh, on the hunt he goes to hunt and Vis has a celebration in honor of her wedding and in the middle of the celebration the envoy of Mobad shows up and says um, I've come to take Vis for our king Mobad as you had promised and this is the first time Vis ever hears about this and mm. she's like what? and and then Shahru's like oh yeah <laughs> oops <laughs> and then Vis is livid and she had, goes on this beautiful um tirade to Zard who's the king's envoy and she just like like uh, reads him to filth basically uh-huh. you know and she's like he's like I don't know who you are showing up at our party like this but go back to your king and tell him you've obviously become senile because there's no way in hell that me who's like so young and beautiful would marry you who are this old man oh, wow. yeah and he sent, she sends him back. And then he tells the king this, and he's really upset. So then he sends another envoy, and they kidnap Vis, and mm. they take her forcefully to the palace with her um, nursemaid, her governess, sort of. And then Vis is traumatized and upset, mm-hmm. and she spends her days crying and crying and crying. And the nursemaid tries to sort of placate her and says, you know, it's not that bad. He's a king, you know, give it a shot. Why not? <laughs> and she says, no way. No way in hell am I going to do this. And then she says, and then Vis 
um, convinces the nanny who has magical tendencies and powers to create this talisman which will render Mobad impotent with her and the nanny does it only under the um, circumstances she says I'll do this we'll do we'll keep this talisman for like a few weeks or a month until you sort of get accustomed to him and then we'll break it and you guys will you know have your life together Mm -hmm. as it's meant to be Visa's fine and then lo and behold there's a storm there's a flood and the flood takes the talisman with it and so the talisman is lost and uh, Mobad is then remains impotent with his wife Vis for the rest of eternity uh, and so it's interesting because we were talking yeah. about this earlier that Vis who's this character who's reviled even at this point has been so she's been married twice and as right. uh, Gorgoni actually points to this that she's been married twice but never has she actually consummated any of these marriages so she and still so, has her chastity yeah her purity, she still yeah. has her chastity mm-hmm. you know her virginity that is seems to be such a big deal you know right. for these for some of these texts and then so when she's with Ramin he's actually her first uh, lover mm-hmm. yeah and so that's also interesting is that she's reviled, but really she's never been with anyone but Ramin, yeah? Mm-hmm. But still, she's wielding her agency, going against what these men have wanted, you know, going against mm-hmm. what the king has wanted, who is the symbol of patriarchy, right? right. In, a con- in an empire that's ruled by a man, he, he is the patriarchy. Yeah. So by cuckolding him and by going against him, it's, yeah. Right, and you mentioned that he knew... She knew Ramin, the younger brother, yeah, from a young age. A young and age. then, so how does their relationship then flower? They're yeah. really so. Um, it's actually interesting because Ramin then approaches the nanny and tries to get her to intermediate between the two of them. And finally, then the two of them meet. And initially, actually, Visa is very hesitant about her relationship with Ramin. She's very worried. She's like, I don't want to be, you know. Uh, unvirtuous and mm-hmm. I don't want to give up everything for this and she has all of these anxieties that that someone you would imagine like Shirin would have uh-huh. yeah right. but she ultimately says forget it you know like this is this is who I love and this is who I want to be with and the nanny sort of encourages it too she's like yeah go go with him hmm. he really loves you it's interesting yeah it's it is interesting. very interesting yeah. Yeah. so eventually she does want to or wants to pursue this relationship with Ramin and then they decide they have to, to leave the king. So, right, I mean, to... it's it's a long story that sure. goes back and forth. Basically, the king finds out, like I was telling you, mm-hmm. and, um, and reprimands her and tries to kill her a couple of times and all of this stuff. But she stands her ground. You know, there's actually a scene. It's very much like Chaucer's um, Canterbury Tales, the tale that the one of the characters tells. I don't remember. But it's interesting because there's one scene where Ramin is pining for her on the roof and she's asleep next to Mobad in her bed. Mobad's fast asleep and she hears him and she wants to go be with him. And so she convinces the nanny to take her place in bed and she goes uh. up to the roof and spends the nice w- night with Ramin. Wow. And then at dawn, immediately runs back to the bed <laughs> wow. and takes the place. And the the king's like, he, he has a suspicion and she chastises him and is like, you know, why are you so doubtful of me? <laughs> it's There's a lot of these sort of tales in the uh-huh. between, but the king ultimately finds out, but he literally can't do anything about it. You know, and this mm. is the other interesting thing. Whatever he tries to do, it's that it's actually, I talk about how in my uh, dissertation, I talk about how these previous women of the Shahnameh bring out these specific qualities that are then manifested in these later women too in Shirin mm. and Vis. And like the determination that I was talking about that Rudabe has in, and that's how mm-hmm. she's ultimately united with Zal appears in Vis too. 
it's really Visa's determination. Because actually, between the two of them, Ramin is much more passive of a mm-hmm. figure. Ramin isn't as bad as Khosro, but he's kind of a little bit like Khosro, you know? Not <laughs> such a great character. Pretty weak, actually, uh-huh. as an individual. But it's Vis that she has the burden of this husband she never asked for and everything. Mm. But at the same time, she's the one that pulls the weight of this relationship with Ramin in some yeah. ways, too. Interesting. Yeah, and then yeah. what you shared with me before is then eventually they... Eventually, yeah, yeah sorry, I keep... No, no, it's okay. But yeah, eventually what they do is that they they sack the treasury, the royal treasury, and Vis and Ramin with the nanny, if I'm not mistaken, they take off. They run. They become fugitives. And then the king himself gets up and goes after them to find them. And ultimately, in this really anticlimactic scene almost, the king is killed by a boar. A boar attacks him like while he's asleep or something and dies. And once he dies, then Vis and Ramin return to the capital and him being the younger brother of the king becomes king himself. And they get married and he, she becomes, Vis becomes Ramin's queen. Mm-hmm. And they're celebrated for years and years to come. They have two sons who then carry on the dynasty. And she dies at the age of 80. And he pines for her until he dies. And then the Gorgani tells us they're reunited in heaven and they have statues built for them and the city to remember them in yeah. goodness. But it's the, mor- the morals of the story are very interesting, actually, too, in that it's sort of like, you know, the king is cuckolded mm-hmm. and his treasury is sacked in a way but they're not punished for it in any way yeah. and ultimately he dies without them doing anything you know they don't kill him he dies at the hands of an animal yeah and then um, they come back and they're kind of live happily ever after, ever we after. Even see and then even in the, the in heaven they're reunited yeah. so as you're yeah. saying we see that in the text Visa's uh, rewarded She's and praised rewarded. and her life yeah. is, it works out and Absolutely. actually just before the commercial break I, I don't know if we said it on the air but going back to Shirin's story and her her death right. kind of reflecting that yeah. is a, it's tragic it's, in its like own way it's like the complete yeah. opposite in many yeah. ways because Shirin once Khosro is killed at the hands of his own son from the previous marriage to Mariam Shirin then um, the son approaches him to marry her then mm-hmm. and she gives she pretends like she's okay with it but then asks for one last visit to the mausoleum of the king and then she goes into the mausoleum and uh, stabs herself exactly where he's been stabbed and lies next to him and bleeds to death and it's this sort of like it always reminds me of this almost like you know uh, this practice of like sati you know of like the, the widow burning herself once the husband is done it's similar in that she ends up giving up her life you know right. uh, for him um, very different than very what, different yeah. yeah and there is this I you know even in your death I won't want to be with anyone else we can yeah. say that's pleasing and as you, the word yeah. you've used a few times palatable to the yeah. patriarchy that you don't have to ever worry even yeah. if you're dead I wouldn't you know I'll still be faithful to but you. what I'll tell you is very interesting last thing I'll say yeah. is that when before Shirin dies she screams hmm. and there's this scream that all the um, the courtesans and everyone in the court hears and so that to me is very interesting in that even in her death the last thing that we hear is her voice right hmm. it's that what she's known for her utterance her power of utterance and even that in a way it signals like she is gone she's done you know wow. but yeah yeah that is interesting and yeah that how different they are and again how differently they are remembered or yes. admired or not admired Absolutely. or vilified in a way uh we actually are going into our last commercial break so after break maybe we can have some final thoughts on some sure. of these topics and and you know wrap up the discussion probably we'll have to have you back on again my Thank guest you. dr sahwa shayani we'll be right back welcome back again my guest dr sahwa shayani um sahwa you shared uh 
a lot, and of course these texts are hundreds, hundreds of pages long, um, but you did give some little summaries of different stories and different prominent female characters in some of classic Persian texts. And I thought it could be interesting to tie it back into present day and, and what you see, any connections. You've been doing this work for quite some time, and what we're seeing in Iran right now, of course, has only been this new movement for six, seven months. But in general, what do you see as some connections based on what you've learned studying the literature so closely that come to your mind? Um, I mean, multiple things. One is that, you know, I think we have to recognize that um, the strength of Iranian women um, does not come out of a vacuum. You mm -hmm. know, this is something that has been um, there for centuries and centuries. Um, and our, our literature um, shows this, reflects this, mm -hmm. really. Um, so I think that's a key thing to take away from it. The other, I think, to me is that the, these issues, that the issues that we have today surrounding um, women's liberation, women's status, you know, equality of between the sexes, are things also that have been also there for centuries, you mm -hmm. know, and that this issue is not an issue that is that is it's not just a an issue today. It's right. been there for a long time, and we've been struggling with it, grappling with it for different uh, for centuries. And I think really something that I take away from all of these is trying to reflect on ourselves. You know, seeing like how do the lessons, the morals that are being taught to us from these texts, for the good or the bad, how are, how do they reflect in our own lives? How mm -hmm. do we do they reflect in our own modern day culture? You know, yeah. do we still have double standards for women and men in our households, for boys and girls in our households? You know, do we still have have double standards for girls and boys in our culture? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. in the the way they interact with society, in the way they interact with one another, in the roles that we expect them to play. Um, I mean, Dina Nayeri had this beautiful article that I read a couple of weeks ago on um, Iranian daughters mm. um, and sort of the role of Iranian daughters. And yeah, it's I, so fascinating you're bringing her up. I'm reading her book right now. Are I'm you? talking about it on my show Monday. She just wrote a book, uh, Who Gets Believed? Oh, oh it's yeah, really yeah, interesting. But that's what you yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I'm really, yeah, been enjoying it. I have uh, more than halfway through and it's a really great book. I'll send so, you this article. Yeah, I don't please. know if you've read it. It's amazing. I think I saw it. I saw people post it, but I would yeah. love to see it again. Yeah. It was fascinating because it really does grapple with these issues, yeah. you know, of like what's expected of like women in, in our in our culture. Yeah. And and I think that this is what I'm saying. I think it comes back, you know, there, there are these uh, global movements. There are mm -hmm. these general movements happening um, that reflect also reflect our past. But also, I think those movements need to be coupled with changes happening in our own individual lives too, mm. in our own individual perspectives, you know? Um, because I think when I read these texts that are from the 10th century, 11th century, I still see elements that are sure, very sure, much so yeah. present in today, in our, in our culture, you know, of like, oh, it's okay for like these with the other, the women of the others to do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. but not our own daughters, you know, or what is expected of our own daughters, but not of our own sons, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. so on. So I think that that to me is something that to take away from it to really uh, bring it into action, you know, mm -hmm. to, okay, what are we learning from these texts and how can I then use it to cause change in today's world? And the other is this understanding that this, this strength of our women has always been there. Yeah. It's not something, and it's something that throughout time has, um, 
like with anything that makes progress, it moves forward and then goes back a little bit and then moves forward and goes back. You know, it's like a, what's it called? In Persian, we say navasan. It's the sort of like up and down, you know, it's not just like a straight line. Yeah. Progress never is, you know. Never linear, yeah. It's never linear, exactly. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, th th that to me, that was the starting point of it. That was why I started was because in my own life, I saw, you know, the strength of Iranian women. And I come, we come back to it again today, you know, and it's interesting because yeah. uh, when I was a child, like, you know, 30 something years ago, I saw it individually myself. Now today we're, we're seeing it on a global scale, yeah. right? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think um, we were talking about this uh, before about just how culture you're saying like the literature is like philosophy it's like the original philosophy yes. before we call it philosophy because it's in a way telling us there's morals right we talk about the moral of the story right. why do we say that it's like what do you learn from this how are you supposed to be and how are you not supposed to be right. who's who's the good guy the bad guy the good girl the bad yeah. girl and it then tells you uh in a very so it's even unconscious or conscious way yeah. of what you're supposed to be and not supposed Absolutely. to be and so i think um you know logically if you ask almost anyone on planet earth they say oh yeah men and women are equal and they should be treated equal that's yeah. a like from a logical place most people see that as the right thing yeah but emotionally based on what we've experienced in our lives, the stories also, the literature, we might have different types of feelings about things. Yeah. So uh, yeah, men and women should be equal, but then oh, if a woman gets too much power, yeah. can make her own decision. It might, yeah. you know, for certain, it might make people, some men freak out or yeah. they don't like that. Yeah. So the, you know, I've even seen this in, in talking to people in therapy and couples therapy mm. that most, especially younger generation would say, yeah, men and women are equal. Yeah. A woman should be strong and be given the, you know, equal rights to a man. But then when I see the dynamics within their relationship, yeah. I see that the man might not be comfortable with exactly. the woman being equal or as strong yeah. or would prefer she's a little bit more, you know, these classical right. ways that are more quote unquote traditional. Yeah. So as you were saying, although uh, we might think, oh, this is ancient literature from a thousand years ago, uh, we could still see that it's it's part of the culture and it impacts the culture to this day. Absolutely. There's a lineage yeah. there. Yeah. I think, you know, I think really as an Iranian people and perhaps as people of greater Iran who are tied to this incredibly rich literature that we have, I mean, I can't say enough about our literature. You know, mm -hmm. our literature, really, our poetry, especially in my opinion, is, is so vast, so rich, so beautiful. We're so lucky to have this, you know? It's our greatest asset. Mm. And we, as a people who are tied to this literature, our worldviews are also tied to this literature, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you might say, yeah, but, but you know, X might say, yeah, but I don't even read Persian. I've never even read this. Yeah. It doesn't matter. The 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 context, the Iranian quote unquote context that you've been brought up with, I can guarantee you was influenced by this literature. You yeah. know, the best of it of it to me is, um, you know, our grandparents grew up a lot of them um, reading Saadi in elementary school. Like they started learning with Saadi's mm. uh, Golestan. And um, one of the the lines of Sadi's, one of his poems, he says, Yeah, hmm. uh, which means if you don't want to be made Roswa, now Roswa you can translate in many different ways. Um, you can say humiliated, you can see it as sort of destroyed almost. Yeah, but if you don't want to be humiliated or destroyed, then become the same color as the rest of the population. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. now you can read this two ways. You can say, 
positively, you can say saying life's easier if you just go with the grain, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which sure, we get it. But the other, the flip side of it, the negative is if you don't want to be destroyed or humiliated, then just do as everyone else does and don't be yourself, don't be unique, mm -hmm. you know? A very collectivist kind of a Very mindset, collectivist, yeah. yeah. And I think this is interesting for our culture because I think as, as Iranian Americans, we see this, we're between the two cultures where America is all about you, 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 yeah? Mm -hmm. And then Iranian culture maybe more like Japanese culture, these other cultures is more about the collective, the and we, then yeah. we, mm -hmm. and also and also very much about your honor, mm -hmm. right? About Aberu, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting; these things play such, like. Show me an Iranian American kid who hasn't been told something about their Aberu if they don't do yeah, X, Y, and right. Z. You know, mm -hmm. and these things are all constructed, uh, led by our literature in many ways, and. And it's, you know, it's vast, it's rich, it's incredible. It doesn't mean it's all positive. It right. actually it offers you a way to reflect and see what do I have to work on? And then what assets do I have that I can offer help through to society through? Yeah, I mean, yeah, as you're saying, whether or not you've even read the literature, um, you know, culture is this thing that it's kind of like the air you breathe. You yeah. take it on without realizing you're taking it on. And so you might not know the roots of it or what's created or why the values are the way that they are. Absolutely. But you're exposed to it over and over again and you just internalize it as some kind it of truth. It becomes your reality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you might not know why, uh, you know, men and women, we have the gender roles. Let's say we have yeah. an Iranian culture. But it doesn't mean it's not real or it won't affect no. you, even if you don't know the, the roots of it. So yeah. I think that's yeah, really interesting and important for us to yeah, understand our own history and where it comes from. And sometimes it helps you disentangle. It's like, oh, yeah. this is why we do it this way. Exactly. So maybe it doesn't have to keep being that way. Exactly. You, know? you nailed it. Disentangle. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I tell my students this, too. I think uh, when you are able to see it and recognize these elements, then you are able to work with it. A lot of times I'll have students come and say, you know, like things like they make fun of Tarof, for example, you know, and I get it. But when you explain it, actually, and it makes sense to them, you know, mm -hmm. wh what are the roots of Tarof, perhaps, you know? Some of it comes from need, from not having, from not knowing if your neighbor's eaten today. So when you're opening up your lunch in front of them, you're not just going to eat there by yourself. You'll share, you'll mm. offer, you know. And when you explain these things, there's other elements, too, I'm sure. It's not yeah. just that. But then things make sense. Sure. Yeah. And then we learn about ourselves and how to progress. And yeah, and that's the, the progress part, because I think when it makes sense, it also like helps you realize, okay, well, if it no longer serves us, maybe we can move away from it. Mm, Tradition and mm. customs, they're difficult to change and, you know, there's some value to them. But uh, when we understand it, like, okay, the reason why we, you know, yeah, the reason why we tore off is this, this, okay. Even that, oh, that's something beautiful in that. Mm -hmm. While at the same time recognizing to progress, maybe we can move a bit away from that. So sure. we hold on to some parts of it, but we yeah. move away from it in a way that might be more meeting our needs currently, right? So yeah. I, I talked about Tarof recently on the show about how it could interfere with relationships yeah. a certain way because if we're yeah, both yeah, not being yeah. genuine, like the analogy I thought of was like, okay, oh, Sahaba's coming over to my house. I'm going to buy this $1,000 caviar to yeah. impress him. And then you come, you don't even like the caviar, yeah. but now you eat it because you think I like it. Now next time I invite you over, I'm like, oh my God, I have to get that same caviar. Yeah, no. And so we might not want to hang out with each other because <laughs> of this assumption we both have yeah. of what we have to do in this yeah, kind of game. Yeah. So when we recognize where it comes from, I think you're right, but we first have to get it yeah. to then really know how to change and progress or exactly. whatever we want to do past then, that. Exactly, because like, you can recognize the beauty of Tarof, right? Yeah. In the sense that, no, you offer, yeah? But that doesn't mean that you like bend over backwards or kill yourself over it, yeah. Right, yeah, because I think then if you... Um, 
recognize that, and there's something, you know, as much as I think Taruf can be, there's a disingenuousness to it also, but there's something very, that hospitality uh, absolutely. can be something, something very kind, warm something, and beautiful. Yeah, there's yeah. a warmth that you feel. Like I've heard of people in some other cultures, like they'll say, you know, I went to my friend's house and I wasn't, they did not be there when they're younger and they would just have dinner and not give me dinner because like I wasn't yeah. in, like, invited for dinner. There like was some this European, whole thing yeah. about the Swedes about yeah, the, this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's kind of like in, that, in a Persian household, that's impossible that's like, like for that to ever, for them to let you leave the house like hungry. So, yeah. you know, some, some parts of it are nice. And like, but yeah. again, it goes back to the understanding of it. And um, I think what you're doing with your scholarship and, and all the studying and the writings you're doing is you've done that and you're also sharing that. And to, today I really appreciate you coming in here and sharing it with me and Thank with the, the listeners. And I think as is obvious to anyone listening, you have so much more to share and I would love to have you back on to, to get even more in depth in some of these things and look at even you know more ways of connecting it to the present day because Absolutely. yeah, the reason why we study history is not just to keep it in history, it's to understand how we've gotten to where we are today and also then how we can create a better Definitely. and different future. So I yeah. uh, would love Absolutely. to have you back on Thank soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me over today. It's been an absolute pleasure. So again, my guest uh, today was Dr. Sahbo Shayani, who is a lecturer at UCLA and a longtime friend of mine. was very happy to have him on. So thank you again. Um, we've reached the end of our show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.